Happy Sabbath. Good morning. So, the 20th century, deadliest century in human history. Happy Sabbath. It's true, though. Deadliest century in recorded human history. It's estimated in the 90 years between 1900 and the end of 1989 that roughly 86 million people perished because of war. Only to be surpassed by the estimated 120 million people who perished because of government-sanctioned genocide or mass murder. Staggering numbers. In a 90-year period, staggering numbers. But to put them into a manageable perspective, when you break it down hourly, in those 90 years, an average of 240 people died per hour because of war or genocide or mass murder. Staggering. But we'll come back to that. This week, we continue our series, Getting Along, Relationship Lessons from the Sermon on the Mount. I have enjoyed being part of this series. I've enjoyed Chris's portion, Tommy's, and I look forward to Chris preaching again next week as we close this series on what it means to relate to one another when we look at Jesus' sermon from the Mount of Blessings. Today, I would like for us to specifically look at Jesus' final two antithetical statements. But first, let's look again at the Beatitudes. When I spoke a few weeks ago, I mentioned how the Beatitudes are a traditional rabbinic opening to a sermon. Jesus uses this traditional introduction to open his manifesto on how a Christian's life ought to be lived. And he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. But listen to it this way. Happy are the oppressed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are those who grieve because they know they will be comforted. Happy are those who are humble for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after justice for they will be satisfied. Happy are those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are those who are peacemakers, for they are called children of God. 
Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are you whenever people disgrace you and persecute you and speak lies of all kinds against you for my sake. Be joyful and be glad, because in heaven your reward is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who came before you. That's heavy when we realize that Jesus was talking about a condition of the heart, that happy or joyful are the people who experience those things. That's heavy. Today, as I mentioned, we will be looking at Jesus' final two antithetical statements recorded in Matthew 5. And those two antithetical statements flow directly from his beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. I confess, I have an affinity for the notion, the idea, the theory, the place of peace. So much so that when Selena and I named our son Danan, his name was chosen specifically. Last Sabbath, when Tommy sat down, I leaned over next to him and I said, so you finished your sermon with a story about Czechoslovakia. Well, next Sabbath, I will begin my story with one from Czechoslovakia. And it's true, because Viverka is a Slavic name. It's a very rich name, and it means squirrel. Now, some of you say, well, that, uh, I know your family, and that seems about right. <laughs> but it actually comes from the color of our ancestors' hair. You see, there was a bit of a Celtic influence in that part of Eastern Europe, and our ancestors had red hair. And that red hair matched the red hair of the European squirrel. And so Viverka now, today, with an Anglo tongue, was Viverka back then. And it simply meant you look like the red fur of a squirrel. Well, I want Danan to grow up with a perspective of history, with a perspective of belonging. And so I wanted him to have not only a Slavic last name, but I wanted to give him a Slavic middle name as well. And also because of that Celtic heritage that migrated to that portion of the world, we wanted to choose a Celtic name as well. So his first name, Danan, is ancient Celtic. And we chose it not because it has a cool diphthong in it. We chose it because it means a kind-hearted man. I wanted him to grow up with a perspective to know that we chose a name for him that we expected him to live up to. A kind-hearted man. But now to the part of the middle name. The Slavic middle name he was given. And it's a different one. I'm sure that teachers at Rogers look at it and say, huh, interesting. But it's spelled L. U-B-O-S. And again, with an Anglo tongue, we decided to pronounce it the, the easy way so that everyone who saw it could read it 
and pronounce it phonetically and say lubos. So Danon, lubos, viverka. But lubos is properly pronounced labosh. And labosh is the pet version of the formal name lubomir. And lubomir means lover of peace. And you'll forgive me if I get teary when I say this, but that means that the son that I have will grow up knowing that his name means a kind-hearted man loves peace. Squirrel. I wanted him to know that his name was chosen specifically because I want him to know that he is a child of the Prince of Peace and that that Prince of Peace calls him to also make peace on earth as his child. So let's look at Jesus' first, or excuse me, it would be his fifth, but the first of the two statements we will look at today. Recorded in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, Jesus tells the people sitting on the mountainside that day, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The early church clung to these words. The early church held tightly to Jesus' words that he spoke that day, on the Mount of Blessing. They believed that when he said, turn the other cheek, give your coat, and go the extra mile, that he was speaking specifically about living a nonviolent life. They believed this so much so that they organized widespread evangelism to Roman soldiers. Their efforts were quite successful. They converted soldiers in mass to Christianity, which meant that those soldiers would then desert their post at penalty of death in order to follow the peaceful way of Jesus. Being a Christian meant renouncing war of any kind, renouncing violence because they knew that it fragmented culture and it destroyed lives. Christians were the first known group in history to denounce violence in any form. They recognized that although Jesus never spoke specifically against war, his teachings, when taken literally and philosophically, left no room for hostility. And for 248 years, Christians lived this ideal, and it worked. And you know what? It even works today. The 20th century, as I mentioned, was the deadliest century in recorded human history. 
And in the middle of that century, we have two examples. When juxtaposed against each other, show the value of what it means to live nonviolently in the face of an oppressor. During India's nonviolent protest of British occupation, one in every 400,000 Indian citizens lost their life due to that conflict. But by contrast, during Algeria's violent resistance to France's occupation, during that same post-colonial era, one in every 10 Algerians lost their life. Nonviolent resistance, one in 400,000. Violent resistance, one in 10. We have many examples of nonviolence working on a national level. The Velvet Revolution, again in Czechoslovakia, as late as 1989. Obviously, Dr. King's civil rights movement right here in the U.S., just to name a couple. But we also have stories of personal experiences with nonviolent resistance. Stories like Adventism's own Desmond Doss. You see, Desmond was drafted during World War II, and he was mocked for being a conscientious objector, one who wouldn't carry a gun. And during boot camp, he would kneel beside his bunk to pray in the evening. And at that time, his fellow servicemen would throw their boots at him, hurl insults and snide remarks. But those same boots would be polished and placed at the foot of the offender's bunk before morning. And Desmond came to be revered by those same men who tormented him. Early Christians believed, both corporately and individually, that this worked. They believed that they could defeat evil with kindness and love. They believed that Jesus was on to something divine when he taught us to do good in response to evil. This nonviolent form of resistance was so damaging that in the third century, Rome mandated that soldiers practice what Christians consider paganism as an attempt to stem the tide of converts. But in spite of the law, soldiers still deserted to become nonviolent Christians. So Christians converted soldiers, and Christianity conquered Rome. And the worst calamity to Christianity occurred. Christianity became legal. And even after trying to make it illegal for soldiers to convert, Constantine changed Rome's religion to Christianity, a move from which the church has not yet recovered. After all, a religion in the service of the state is a religion that not only accepts war, but prays for victory. You see, soldiers no longer made the leap to peacemaker because now they were in the employ of the country 
for which God had chosen them to serve. They were now defenders of the faith. They were defenders of the nation that God had chosen to bless. This idea of a just war is not exclusively Christian. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, all major religions have notions of the God-ordained war. Christianity was the first and the only one that didn't until Constantine. As Christians, we simply gave up one of the key tenets of our faith that set us apart. So why does this matter? It matters in the answer to this question. Where are the peacemakers? Because peace is fragile, is it not? War, whether personal between two individuals or national between countries, that's durable. So how does this impact you and me? After all, this is supposed to be a sermon series on relationships, not national policy. Let's look back at Matthew 5. Jesus, when he speaks to the people on that mountainside, gives them three culturally effective examples as to how his listeners personally can counter an oppressor. Jesus knew well that he was speaking to a group that had specific notions about shame. In that part of the world, shame is still important. Now, in the West, we treat shame kind of like a commodity. And all you have to do is watch reality TV or look at a magazine when you're checking out at the grocery store. In the West, shame is not quite the same deal that it is in the East. But shame to the ancient Hebrew was important. So Jesus comes in and he says, here are three examples. Number one, turn the other cheek. Give your cloak and go the extra mile. Let's look at turn the other cheek. This is about personal oppression. When someone walks to you, and slaps you on the cheek, in that day and age, they would have slapped you on the right cheek, as the text says, with their right hand. They would have slapped you across the right cheek, and it would have been a slight or an insult to you. And Jesus says, if you want to go on, and you want to do it properly, turn your left cheek. And to present the left cheek meant that they would have to switch hands and slap you with their left hand, but to touch you with their left hand was shameful to them. So what Jesus is saying, without even speaking a word, without even raising a hand, you can end this argument now by presenting the cheek that says, is this such a big deal to you that you are, wor- that you are willing to shame yourself for it? And if you do not wish to bring shame upon yourself, then let's let it go. You and I, together, let's let this go. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, give them your coat if they come to take your shirt. 
we don't quite get the same nuance here because this is about civil oppression, a person who uses the law to oppress you individually. But really what's happening here is Jesus is saying, if somebody comes to you and they want to take your underwear, because that's a better translation, they want to take your undergarment, the garment that you wear under your outer garment, if they want to take your underwear, which really, in all honesty, if you're going to take some clothing of mine, that's the least consequential, right? If you come to me and say, you get to leave here today with either your underwear or your outerwear, which do you choose? I imagine most all of us would choose outerwear to walk out these doors and into public. So if somebody comes to you and says, give me your underwear, Jesus says, don't just stop there, but give them your outerwear also. Okay, weird. But what Jesus is saying here is, leave yourself naked. And we think that this is a humbling or a, a humiliating experience. But in the ancient world, being naked was not something to be shameful for. If you remember, David dances naked without shame. But later, David is shamed when he sees Bathsheba bathing. It was not Bathsheba's shame. It was David's. You see, being naked was not wrong. But looking upon someone, that brought shame to you. Which is why Noah, when he is naked in his tent, it is the son's curse, not Noah's. And the other sons walk in backwards to cover him. Not for his shame, but for their own. And what Jesus is saying, he says, if somebody comes and they try to take your clothing, just give it to them and say, is this what you wanted? You wanted this so bad that you were willing to shame yourself for it. And if not, together, let's let this go. And then finally, Jesus says, if someone tells you to go a mile, go with them too. And this is about national oppression. Oppression of the individual from a national scale. You see, we've gone from personal to civil and now to national. An example in every walk of life. And Jesus says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, which was the law, Hebrews in that day and age were forced by Roman citizens, specifically soldiers, to carry their stuff from mile marker to mile marker. And Jesus says, if someone forces you to do this, don't stop at that mile. Keep on keeping on. Because now who's in control? The one who's walking. And that Roman soldier who says, um, carry my bag, you dog, now has to say, excuse me, may I please have my bag back? Why are you still carrying my bag? And conversations can be had. Nonviolently, you complied and at the same time resisted. 
without raising a fist, without speaking a word, you make a difference. You be that salt and light that Tommy was talking about last week. This is how we respond when someone comes to diminish us. Don't just meet their demand, but exceed it with a level of service that engages them personally. Be creative in the way you make peace. Be creative, be active in the peacemaking process. Don't just take the abuse like a lump. Jesus, when he says, turn the other cheek, isn't saying, oh, just take it. Not at all. He's saying, bring God's kingdom to the situation. Anyone can react with verbal or physical violence because that's easy, isn't it? When someone slights me, the easiest thing for me to do is to be angry about it. But Jesus is saying here to his followers, people who resort to violence lack creativity. He wants us to be creative, to be imaginative in the way we bring peace. So how does this work? First, Christians must not demand their personal rights. Ooh. Christians must not demand their personal rights. Furthermore, the true follower of Jesus does, does more than is expected. He or she is free from society's low standards of expectation. They are instead subject only to the will of the Father. The conduct of the Christian is filled with surprise for those who experience it. This element of surprise relates closely to and reflects the grace that is central to the gospel. It is the unworthy who have experienced the good things of the kingdom, and they have experienced the surprise of unexpected grace. So now they act in a similar manner toward the undeserving among them. Jesus himself provides the supreme example of the fulfillment of this ethic, and his disciples are called to follow in his path. Being slapped, sued, and commanded to walk a mile were very real problems within the ancient Hebrew world. What are the problems we face today? What are the personal issues we face? And how do we creatively defeat evil with kindness and love? On a root level, what happens to me when someone attempts to take advantage of me is I feel diminished. My ego and pride flare up. When I feel diminished by someone, I have several options in the way I respond. I can ignore them as if it never happened, which is a passive response. I can also take an active role. 
I can respond in a way that attacks or diminishes them in return. An eye for an eye. Or I can engage them in a way that does not diminish them, but allows them to decide if this is really the way they want to live. The truth is, when someone comes to diminish me, I cannot be diminished. I cannot be diminished by words or by actions unless I choose to let them. Someone stealing from me or calling me nasty names in no way changes who I am, for I am a child of the King. I am a child of the Creator God. I am forgiven, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, sanctified by grace, saved by faith, and free in the Spirit. Someone slapping me, suing me, or commanding me to go with them in no way diminishes who I am. Jesus says now, engage those people who attempt to diminish you in a way that calls them out of feeling diminished themselves. Love your enemies in such a way that they see the shamefulness of living in a diminished way and bring them into the value of being a child of God for that is what they are. Which brings us to Jesus' final antithetical statement, recorded in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I wonder what Matthew thought as he was recording this as Jesus wrote. Because you remember, Matthew had been a tax collector. Don't even the tax collectors do that? I imagine Matthew pausing there and looking up and thinking, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> but it makes a good point. Even the people among you who you despise, you think they're sellouts. Even they do that stuff. So what makes you better than that? This final statement is an extension of the statement prior. Not only are we to creatively confront our oppressors with love, which is active, we are also to internalize this love in such a way that it compels us to pray for the people we don't even like. Donald Hagner has some pretty deep thoughts on the matter. This is a long quotation, and I pray that you'll stay with me. But he says, The final climactic antithesis turns to the great love commandment of the Old Testament. Jesus, interpreting the law in the light of the dawning kingdom, extends the application of that commandment so as to include even one's enemies. 
The love he describes, of course, is not an emotion, but volitional or chosen acts for the benefit and well-being of others, even those we may dislike. In this love that knows no boundaries, the disciples are to reflect the generosity of God who sends blessing upon both the righteous and the unrighteous and who has brought the kingdom to the unworthy. Through the coming of the kingdom, the disciples are thus called to be perfect as their father is perfect. The righteousness of the kingdom can be satisfied by nothing less. And as the disciples live out this righteousness, they conform or confirm, excuse me, their identity as children of the heavenly Father. This is an ethic that will startle those who experience it. It is an ethic that will inevitably shine like light in a dark place and cause the Father to be glorified. It should be added that the perfection in view here is a goal towards which disciples are called to strive but not one they will fully achieve in this life. The Christian will thus always have occasion to pray for the forgiveness of sins as Jesus taught his disciples to pray later in Matthew 6. The call to perfection is quite like the Pauline call for the Christians to be what they are in Christ. Here, it is a matter of being children of the Father. Or, in other words, The price of kindness to difficult people is trust that God actually loves us all. Those are profound words, and they are not mine. They belong to Selena. Did you hear that? The price of kindness to difficult people is trust that God actually loves us all. So imagine with me a world where Christians change the status quo. Imagine a world where Christians fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. Wouldn't it be strange if we took Jesus at his word and learned to be creatively nonviolent? At this point in my sermon preparation, I was searching feverishly for a story that would put a nice little bow, a ribbon, on this talk. Because I, I wanted to tell you a story about someone who was creative with her rebuttal to being diminished and how great things happened. But I couldn't find one that I liked. Because sometimes the great things happen and people change. And sometimes they don't. I was profoundly impacted by the thought that even while Jesus prayed for his oppressors' forgiveness, they still crucified him. Which led me to think that when we choose to live this kingdom ethic, we have to admit that we may not get out of this world alive. Sometimes people will answer the call. They will answer the call to follow Jesus, and sometimes they won't. But that doesn't change how we are called to respond. After all, people don't change at our speed. 
And the only reason we want them to change faster is to decrease our inconvenience. And that's not a reason for them to change. So instead of a feel-good story, I will leave you with two parables. The first, two monks, one old and one young, both walking on a long journey. They'd been caught in a rainstorm, and the road was covered in mud. And as they continued to trudge along, they came to a small town. And in that town, they saw a carriage parked as near to the sidewalk or the boardwalk as it could get. The carriage attendant was busy trying to calm the horse and was not able to attend to the young lady who was inside the carriage, unwilling to get her feet muddy to get to the curb. And without speaking a word or even mentioning his intention, the old monk just simply walked to the edge of the carriage and presented his back for the young lady to climb aboard. She did so, and he carried her to the sidewalk. And when he put her down, with disgust, she sort of huffed and paced away. The old monk just took his spot next to his traveling companion, and they carried on. Hours later, as the sun was setting in the evening, the young monk finally broke the silence, and he said, she didn't even say thank you. How can you stand to help her? And the old monk smiled, and he put his hand on the young monk's shoulder, and he said, son, I put that girl down hours ago. Why do you still carry her? Parable number two. An old man, impoverished, not much immaterial convenience. He had a house. It was simple. Not much food. And his real, his only real possession was a house coat that he had received from his grandfather. Late one night, as he was falling asleep, he heard a commotion someone breaking in. And as he heard the rummaging, he got up out of bed and walked into the main room of the house. And there he was conf confronted by a robber. And the old man looked at the robber and he said, excuse me, can I help you find something? And the robber, being startled, didn't know what to do. He wasn't sure if he should leap back through the window from which he entered or through which he entered, or should he bolt for the front door and run away. The old man, looking at him, said, I don't have much I can share, but I do have this. And he took off his tattered house coat, and he said, You look as though you need this because it's cold outside. 
And the thief didn't know what to do. He was taken back, and he was confused by the generosity of this old man. And again, without saying thank you, he bolted through the front door and was gone into the night. It was at this moment that the old man realized how cold his unheated home was. And he looked out the window through which the robber had come. And he saw the beauty of the full moon. And he lamented in prayer that he hadn't had something as beautiful as the moon to give to his visitor. Sometimes people will change, and sometimes they won't. But it doesn't change our response. And perhaps Thomas Merton sums it up best when he says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite of what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you will start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value of the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and struggle more and more for specific people. So can we imagine a world where we as Christians individually do good to those who attempt to diminish us? Can we imagine a world where we as Christians earnestly pray for those who persecute us and lie about us? Can we imagine a world where we as Christians are salt and light in a fallen world? Can we imagine a world where we as Christians embody the words of Jesus and we non-violently force evil to reveal its ugly face and then skulk away in shame? Can we imagine doing all of this knowing our only reward is in heaven? Can we imagine it? Or do we lack the creativity? Dearly Father, you have placed a tall order upon us. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for his gift of salvation. May we live up to the expectation of being your children. Fill us with your spirit that we may have your level of creativity within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.